This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 if you're interested in turning and following along there. The words will be on the screen here in just a moment in front of you, but we're going to be reading a little bit about a story. And it's a portion of Jesus' life, uh, one where we find Him shortly after being baptized. It's one that, you know, as, as, a, as a part of how I preach, we oftentimes reference other passages. And so in preparation this morning, our core text from the lectionary that we normally follow is one that we've referenced here in the last few weeks, either on Wednesdays or Sundays. And so when I was looking at this text this morning, I want to make sure that we were looking at it in a, in, a, in a good, fresh perspective, one that would challenge us this morning. And I don't want to be too much of a, maybe of a repeat of things we've done in the past. And so when I started looking at this story, I saw a beautiful similarity and a connection between this story and another passage that we have. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to ask the question before we ever read Matthew chapter 4, you know, how do we see evil in the world around us? Because really what we're talking about is this is Jesus being tested in the wilderness in which he has an interaction with evil. And so I want us to kind of enter this text asking the question like, where do we see evil both in the biblical text, not just this one but other ones, but also in the world today? Because I think it's necessary for us to recognize it. So this morning, Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. We're going to read this text together and, uh, and then we will uh, move on from there. Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. God, we come before you this morning reading a passage that to some of us is quite familiar as we have dissected and talked about this in past days, months, years. Yet, God, also there are those of us that reach this at a much more fresh space. Help us who have read this before, God, also to be in the mentality of what fresh and new thing might you share and challenge us through your word this morning. God, we love you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this Matthew 4 text, you get a picture of like Jesus interacting with evil. What I want to ask you this morning is... Where else in the Word do we see evil represented? How, what other forms does evil take in the stories of the Bible? So how else and where else do we see evil? What would you say? A serpent, absolutely, in the Garden of Eden, right? So we see evil represented as a serpent or a snake. Uh, where else do we see evil? There's another one that's animals, but it's kind of the secondary. Do you remember when Jesus came across and he encountered a man who had no clothes on, uh, a man who was uh, um, out of his mind, so to speak, but he was said to have had demons. Matter of fact, it was not one, but it was many, for his name was... Legion. You remember that story? And then we read about as well when, when God interacts with demons. There was a time when, when, God, when Jesus also cast those demons into what? Into swine, into pigs. And so sometimes you read these stories. I mean, are swine inherently evil? No. Are snakes inherently evil? Maybe. <laughs> it depends on kind of your opinion of things. You know? But I mean, not necessarily, you know. And then, but then the other place, it's very, it's very scary, really. But like, 
Where do we see evil in the world around us? Here's the hard part. Not necessarily, but in form of look around. I mean, like, I don't want to, I don't want to escape this in such a way that like we sweep it under the rug and act like it's not a big deal, but let's be transparent enough here for just a moment and recognize how many of us in the room look back at a portion of our life and realize that evil was guiding and directing us. Like this is the part that scares us. In this story here, there's no connection. Like who, who what does evil look like? You know, what, what does it happen? It is, it is the evil though that we see in the world around us. Oftentimes it is evil working through the people that we see, the, the things that we see them doing, that, that evil has a hold of them. There was a, a great line I was reminded of in preparation of this, uh, a movie that came out years ago called The Italian Job. And one of the, the, the quotes in that line that kind of gave away one of the characters and who she was, she was talking about other people, about trusting them. And she said, well, I trust people. I just don't trust the devil inside them. Like there's this reality. Sometimes evil uses and, and can use other people, which is a scary thing to think about. When we picture what evil looks like, sometimes we have this picture on our minds. How many of you have seen the old movie? It's an animated movie. It's become old now, even though it's one of my favorites. How many of you have seen the old movie, The Emperor's New Groove? Remember the one where he gets turned into a llama? You know, and they've got this, this character named Kronk, and he has shoulder angels. What is the one on his shoulder that's telling him to do bad things look like? Kind of red colored, has a little set of wings, right? I mean, we see this represented even in other folklore and stories. There was a movie that came out in 2000 in which these gentlemen are riding down the road and they pick up this guy who's stranded out in the middle of nowhere. And when they pick him up, they're like, you know, well, what were you doing there at the, at the crossroads in the middle of nowhere? And he said, I had to meet the devil there last night, last night at midnight, sell my soul to the devil. And they were like, oh my, you sold, what does the devil even look like? And this one guy in the front seat speaks up and goes, well, you know, there's a whole lot of manner of lesser imps and demons, but the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail and likes to walk around with a pitchfork. The other man in the back seat who had been picked up responds, no, sir, he's white like you fellows, likes to travel around with a mean old hound, has a big, deep voice, dark, hollow eyes. Like when you see evil portrayed, sometimes we've accepted this red and scaly look of evil and folks, it's just not accurate, right? It's not what we should expect. We think about like, what does evil look like? Jesus being tested in this garden, not tested in this garden, being tested in the wilderness, uh, being out in this wilderness and being tested in this time frame, like there's a very real presence that's there. It's a very real presence that we deal with in this world today. And the way that Jesus interacted with it, I mean, what was Jesus tested to do? I think it's important to also recognize Jesus was tested in a very, a very realistic setting and also a very realistic scenario. The setting was away from everyone else by himself. He had gotten to the wilderness how? What led him to the wilderness? This is an important point. What led him there? The Spirit of God. We need to make peace with the fact that by following and while following the Holy Spirit, it does not make us impossible to be tempted. That In the process of following, okay, there's still times evil would love to trip us up in that process of following the Spirit. Another thing is that he had been there doing what? I'll give you a hint. It's the opposite of what you all plan to do in about 30 minutes. You all are about to go have lunch, right? Like that's probably what's going to happen. What was Jesus not doing? He was fasting, right? Like we have this, and so it, it says that when evil came, he had been fasting for some amount of time. And in what condition did evil approach him? How was he feeling when evil approached him? Hungry. I mean, how many of you know that when you get hungry, evil has an easier foothold into your life than when you are full? You know what I mean? Like, how many of you get hangry? Come on. You know what it means to need a Snickers. How many of you live with somebody that gets hangry? Absolutely. There's a little bit of a code word at my house. <clears throat> it's been a fun one to see evolve, but all of us are this way. If my mom looks at you and says, son, do you need a snack? She has no care in the world about whether or not you actually need food. You know what she recognizes? 
You're getting a little hangry. You need to munch on something. And she does that to me from just my dad from time to time. She recognized, and some of you are like, that's what she means. Yeah, you're kind of putting it together that like now when somebody offers you a snack, you know what that means. You probably were getting a little bit short with them, right? But in this story, Jesus was hungry. There's this place of weakness, and yet evil shows up, and he challenges, he challenges Jesus in a couple of ways. One of them is turn the stones into bread. In the act of turning stones into bread, there is nothing inherently. You know, like it doesn't, turning stones to bread itself is not wrong. What's wrong is Jesus had been led into the wilderness to trust his heavenly Father in this fasting process. And in that fasting, evil is telling him, turn that into bread, take care of yourself. And Jesus has to recognize that in that moment, Turning a rock into bread would be trusting in himself instead of God, instead of his heavenly father. It is turning from what he's been called to do in, in those moments. Not that forever that turning something into bread was wrong, but in that moment, it would not be him trusting his heavenly father and taking care of him. And then he says for him to, you know, to jump from the high place because it says in scripture that you'll be taken care of and you won't even stump your toe essentially. And, and you read the story and Jesus responds back to that. Folks, one of the things that we see in this world, we sometimes are tempted to try and test God or really trigger his response. I know I still own this book. It's still on my counter in there. You'll hear me talk about it from time to time because there was a, a fad that came out 10, 15 years ago now, maybe even been 20 by this point in the game, probably was, but a book that came out called The Prayer of Jabez. Remember the book? Some of you have had devotions for a long time. You remember it. There's nothing necessarily wrong with The Prayer of Jabez, but the way it was preached was that if you say these words, God will give it to you. It says that God pray, or J Jabez said these words of, of increase my territory. And folks, all you got to do is ask God to increase your territory and he'll give you all these things. It's like, ho, ho. I'm not saying that, that, that Jabez didn't ask for it and God didn't do something, but be careful putting yourself in the position to think, I can say these words and because God is faithful, he has to do them. You understand? You're not the one directing things. Be very careful in trying to repeat someone else's words so that you can trigger God into doing something. It's not to say that God isn't faithful and doesn't fulfill his promises, but your motivation to trigger God is very different when you are turning bread stones into bread in that moment of being hungry as opposed to just, you know, if you had the ability to do it anywhere else. In this context, it's very, very different. Be careful in how you try to trigger God into doing something. And that's exactly what Jesus taught, not testing God. The other one that, that is being tested in this is, I will give you everything on this world, everything in these kingdoms I'm showing you, if you will bow down to me. And one of the, the core temptations of humanity is to trade the eternal ramifications for the short term. I mean, we see things that are those short term things that like short term gains and, and it'll be okay. And we trade some eternal ramifications for that. I heard someone say, justifying my weekend life was one of the responses I got this morning. Justifying the things I may do in a short moment and not recognizing that my short moment decisions to do less than what God would have me do has eternal ramifications. And sometimes we do those things. And so when we read this story, you're reading as Jesus deals with evil in a very, very real way, in a very structured way. And as I read this story, I started thinking, you know, my, my mind, especially as I've gotten older, I've done better at seeing the connections in Scripture. You know what I mean? Like seeing where these stories run together so much and how what Paul's doing is, a, is very sim similar to what Jesus is doing. Or, or you, know, you see these, these trends taking place. And so what I'd like to do this morning is, if you would, metaphorically speaking, the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, would you do this? Would you hold on to it for just a moment? Some of you are very visual people and you like, you with your hand, hold on to it. Other people are like, preacher, I'm doing it right here. I'm with you. Okay? Whatever. Put it in your pocket. 
All right, hold on to this story for just a moment because I promise you we're going we're gonna to reach back in that pocket and we're going to come right back to it because what I want to do this morning, even though Paul lived after Jesus, I want you to look at how Paul is challenging the people in Ephesians to get ready for evil. And then in a little while, we'll pull that story of the wilderness back out and we'll compare the two of them. But for now, move with me to Ephesians chapter 6. All right, we're going to put that other story in our pocket and we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to ask some of the same questions of... You know, Jesus dealt with evil. Now let's talk about how does Paul challenge these people to deal with evil. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. I'm going to have the words up on the screen as well, but I'm going to read from the, the uh, notes I have here in front of me, okay? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God, we come before you again this morning just simply acknowledging this story and this letter that you've given us is not just for Ephesus. God, it's also for us. So help us for the next few moments to read this as preparing us for dealing with evil. your son's name we pray. Amen. Going back to this story, I think sometimes we've done ourselves a disservice in this Ephesians text. I've heard it preached, I've heard it used, and we almost create this mentality that you all in the church and we all in the church, we need to so prepare ourselves for battle. Because right outside those doors, you know, if you're not in the sanctuary this morning, you may not be able to picture this, but right outside the doors that lead to the outside, right there, when you go out those doors, evil is waiting and you need to have all of this armor ready because battle begins at that door. You know, and I'm not saying that evil and that there's not battle to be done, but let's put this in the context of what Paul is saying. It is for, for when these things happen. It is in the place of being prepared. It is in the place of, of being ready for these sorts of things. So I don't want to create in us some feeling that as soon as we walk out the door, we're walking back into this big fight because I don't know that that does us well. Sometimes we're walking back into life, but sometimes as we are walking through life, we have to be prepared because evil is looking for us. You understand? Like, so, so when you hear this, we read these things that, that Paul is using. Now, the thing I want you to see is Paul is writing this, and he's trying to describe to these people in Ephesus how to be prepared for life. And he uses, what is the very first word in verse 10? Look back at it. What's the very first word? Starts with an F and ends with an finally. right? It's finally. When he's, he's wrapping up this letter, and he's getting to the end, and he's trying to, to say to these people, like, this is how you need to be prepared. And he's trying to put it in a, in a picture and in a case that will work well for them. Now, for just a moment, imagine Paul sitting where writing this letter? prison. Now picture him chained. Now picture what he's chained to. Anybody remember this? What's Paul chained to while writing this? It's a guard. Think with me for a moment as a man is writing to people trying to communicate to them how they need to be prepared to fight evil. And as he looks to his left, yep, that's the picture. That will work. This man is prepared for whatever he may encounter in battle. And we as believers need to be prepared. Are you seeing how all of a sudden he's painting a picture from what he's very familiar with? Some of these things don't make very much sense to us. One of them is this. We'll talk about these somewhat in backwards order 
order, because I really want to start with the helmet of salvation. I think it's something, a place that we kind of need to begin. And one of the reasons for beginning there is this. Many of you, if I ask you the question, where does life, when we know that there is no longer life, how do we determine that someone is dead? And when I ask you that, you're going to be tempted to say when their heart starts beating. But many of you know that's not the truth. As a matter of fact, many of you know that life, at least signs of life and the ability to respond, carry on even without a heart or after the heart stops. We're able from a medical standpoint to plug you up to a machine that keeps your body going, but thus far we're not really able to continue cognitive processes with a, with a machine replacing. We learn things as we've gone through this life, this existence of humanity, that the brain is what controls all of those things, even more so consciousness beyond the heart stopping. To illustrate that, back in the 1700s during the French Revolution, a guy by the last name uh, of Guillotine created a device for executing people because the leadership at that time made it a law that in order to execute someone it had to be done mechanically. In order to be done mechanically, guillotine created this device that drops a blade and beheads people named the guillotine. That's where it came from. One of the things that was happening in this time frame, which by the way, when you think about this, you may think about it being used from time to time because death penalties in your world are just from time to time. The guillotine was used over 10,000 times. You're not talking about something every now and then, talking about a regular existence and it being used often. The the reason that it was taken away was from several individuals. One of them was a lady by the name of Marie Antoinette. Some of you studied her in history. Some of you remember the name. Uh, she was a former queen when she was beheaded. She was one, the story is told, when her head came off, and I know this is a bit grotesque, but allow me to make the point. When it came off, in order to show her disrespect, they slapped her in the face and she had a scowl looking back at them, which meant she was not gone. You understand? Brain was still processing, even though it was separated from heart. This is a wild one. Continuing further in this and what made the guillotine lose its, its traction even more, there was another individual after that who was moving a mouth trying to speak. Folks, I'm telling you, this is what controls life. To, to kind of put the capstone on that, it is said one of the last moments of the guillotine, um, there were two studies done um, by an individual trying to, from a medicinal standpoint, study what was happening. He would call the name of the person who had been beheaded, and for 25 to 30 seconds, the person would open their eyes and look back at him every time he looked down and said their name. They would respond. The stated, or the, the story is told, the last one was when a woman was beheaded, and she blinked, and her story was she would try to blink as, I believe it was a, yeah, she would try to blink as many times as she could, and she blinked for, again, 25 to 30 seconds at like 40-something blinks after it. All of a sudden, we started realizing that just that, that process of the guillotine dropping didn't mean that life was over at that moment. And so some of you, when you're tempted to think like, why was it not the, the, the breastplate of salvation that covers your heart? It's because it is your head that sends the signals for everything else to operate. It, it is that cognitive process that makes everything else in your body function. The helmet of salvation is absolutely necessary. All right. I love, I love the challenge, the fun, and the excitement of sports. Okay. And in the world of sports, you get these opportunities. Uh, our boys and girls basketball teams right now are in a tournament. They've both done well. They'll both be playing between Monday night and Tuesday night at Bethlehem University. It's been a lot of fun to watch them go through this process, and they're continuing to move forward. One of the things that, about sports fans that intrigues me, I don't see it very much in the basketball arena, but in the NFL and soccer arena, you run into some more, let's just call them crazy folks. You know what I mean? Like, they take 
cheering on your team to a whole new level. Um, and it happens in the NFL, but it really happens more in soccer. Have you ever wondered why someone at a ball game would decide that the appropriate thing to do in the middle of this game is to take off all of their clothes and go running across the field? Now, I have to be very careful, okay? Because I understand from the stories of legend of Houston County, there are probably some of you that have participated in this in the past. So I'm just saying... We have a name for this, right? What's the name? If you have done this, you have gone? You are a? Absolutely. All right. So I still like, I haven't got my mind wrapped fully around this, but I know this. People are so compelled at a soccer game, especially. That seems to be where it happens. They go tearing across the field with no clothes on. The only time it just really gets fun is when they do it at a football game because they inevitably get caught by a linebacker. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like form tackle. He's running from somebody, not seeing a linebacker, and just, oh, that's a very good form tackle. And other than that, I've oftentimes wondered, but as much as I'm making jokes about this, hear me in this from a helmet of salvation standpoint. This is my fear. Too many of us in the Christian faith are absolutely running around spiritually streaking. We are glad to be saved, and we have done none of this other stuff. We're saved, and we're just running wide open. That's it. That's where it stopped. We got saved, and that's where it ended. And there was none of these other things taking place, or very little of these other things taking place in spiritual Spiritually speaking, we're very similar to a streaker because that's all we got. We just got our hat on and we're just going. You know what I mean? That's all we got. So my question for you is this, as we continue to look through these, for those of you that are saved this morning, what are the next portions of this that are like, man, I need to, I need to work better on this. Now, I, I don't want to go too far away from this and say as much as I have a little bit of fun joking about a spiritual streaker, and it, it's also where it begins. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me tell you very plainly and simply, it is simply in praying to a God, to the God, and saying... I have sinned, I am asking God to forgive me, and I want Him to guide my steps. I want Him to to guide me from this point forward. That is the helmet of salvation. If you've not prayed that prayer before, you're welcome to do so today with myself, with someone else. And when we close this morning, any of that, I would invite you to do that. Maybe even as you're driving down the road this morning, you would be called or feel so moved to do that. Let's spend a little bit more time here and talk about what Paul is talking about. One of those is the shield of faith. Many of you picture a shield and you picture something that may look more like the modern Marvel uh, movie, uh, Captain America. It's got all the red, white, and blue colors and a big star on it. And it's, I don't know, this big around or so, you know, two, two feet across, something like that. It has nothing similar to what we're talking about here, folks. The shield that they would have brought that he's talking about is something that was probably closer to two thirds the size of a man. It was something that was very, very heavy, something very bulky. I could even give in the, in the sanctuary this morning something that was not far in size, different from the pulpit I'm standing behind, because the reason for that was it was a, a, a shield built of wood grain going two different directions. You had two different types, not types, two different pieces of wood glued to each other, crossing each other, because notice back in that story when he's talking about the, the shield of faith, what does it keep the, the warrior from being hit by? Being pierced by what? arrows or maybe even flaming arrows when you read this. In his context, one of the ways that they would go about fighting is throwing huge spears or arrows that had a bit of fibrous material on the ends of them. They were then dipped in hot tar or pitch, light those things on fire, and they would stay on fire while they were flying in. So when you shot an arrow, it wasn't just the fact that you had a sharp object. It was also that this thing could hit and cause fire. And those big swords or those big shields that were built were enough that those large spears would hit and punch in but would not go all the way through and they also were typically enough that when they hit it would go past the tar and pitch and put the arrow out. Like picture with me for a moment what he's talking about and it's a much bigger piece than some chintzy piece of metal that we're talking about from the movies that we watch. Like needing that shield of faith to be what protects you from the flaming darts if you will. 
I love in this that it talks about feet fitted with readiness. As a matter of fact, this one and the story or the, the picture of the belt of truth are both about being moving, uh, being mobile. When we look back at the Bible time and time again, one of the things that causes problems for humanity is they're guilty of being still. They're guilty of being stagnant. And oftentimes, especially look back at the Old Testament. When did Israel start falling apart? When they quit following God. When they quit moving, when they decided to build their own structure and stay put, things started falling apart. And you have this picture of feet fitted with the readiness of carrying the gospel. The other one here, by the way, what else of these that we've talked about prepares you for being able to move? It's the belt of truth. If you are wearing a flowing garment, breastplate that has to be attached, those sorts of things, you have stuff all over you. And if you're going to have something that prepares you to move, it must be that not only which ties those garments together or the whatever undergarment there is there to ties that to hold it down so you can have freedom to move. Where are you going to be able to put a sword so that you can then have a hand ready? And it's in that same picture. Right? Picture him, again, looking at a warrior in this, some of this having to deal with the, the ability to move and the ability to be able to, to cover, those sorts of things. And then the last one I'd like for us to talk about for just a moment is this picture of a blessed breastplate of righteousness. Again, not negating the need to cover heart and core. You know, it's very difficult to be caught in a life of sin when you are pursuing righteousness. You understand? When you're pursuing righteousness, it's hard to be caught in a life of sin. As a matter of fact, it flows very, very well in the sword of the Spirit because the sword of the Spirit, as we read, is also what? The Word. Thank you. It's the Word of God. Folks, it's the reason that we teach kids memory verses. It's the reason that we spend time in devotions. Now, and I want you to think about this armor of God. Now, put it back in correct and proper perspective in the chronological order. Paul is writing this way after Jesus, okay? So Jesus didn't learn this from Paul. Make sure you get this in the right order. Paul is writing this much later. And yet, as we're looking back at the story of Jesus that happens before, think with me for just a moment. Where does it seem that Jesus even embodies what Paul is talking about, about being prepared to face evil. I mean, think with me for just a moment about his responses, about the way he handles this. In going into the desert in the first place, following the Spirit of God's direction, he is in pursuit of what God wants for him, in pursuit of being of, of that righteousness, right? He's wanting to do what the Heavenly Father is wanting him to do. You see this taking place. In the fitted for readiness, whether that's in the belt of truth, I mean, obviously, speaking the truth of God as he responds to evil. Fitted for readiness in, the, in, the, in, the, in those responses and ability to be able to respond, ability to be able to speak. Obviously, being saved. I, mean, I don't think that's much of a discussion for us. How about the one that talks about being the sword of the Spirit? Where do you see God or Jesus using the sword of the Spirit? It's very simple. In every time that Jesus, remember we've pulled this back out of our pocket now. In every time that Jesus is tempted, what does he answer with? It's the Word of God. That's why learning, that's why sitting here on a Sunday morning and on a Wednesday night or in a Bible study or in your own devotions, like that's why they matter so much. So my question for you as we you know, compare and look at these two things and how well they flow together, my question for you is this, then how will you work today to be better prepared to face evil when it arrives? Is it growing in your awareness of the Word? Is it learning to trust God more so that that shield of faith is what protects you from evil's flaming darts as they fly in? Is it in pursuit of righteousness? Because you know what? You've been going about this life in pursuit of a lot of things, but you haven't exactly been pursuing trying to be the holiest version of you. Maybe it is in pursuing righteousness that you're able to fend off evil in a better way. Or maybe, as we referenced earlier, none of that is possible until you put on the helmet of salvation. None of that's possible until you make peace with acknowledging who your Lord and Savior is. Regardless of where you find yourself this morning, let's be people who work better at being prepared for evil. When, not if, when it shows its ugly face. Amen? God, we come before you today thanking you for who you are. 
thanking you for speaking to us and for showing us how so many times in the Bible there are multiple stories and multiple writers even pointing us in the same direction, living it out in front of us even. God, we pray this morning as we move forward in this life in preparedness for going back out of these doors, in preparedness for dealing with the evil that is a very real presence in this life, God, would you help us? And if it is this morning, first putting on the helmet of salvation and asking God to forgive us, God, would you help us this morning to say a very simple prayer that goes anything like this? I acknowledge, I admit that I have sinned. I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to guide me from this point forward. God, if we pray that prayer for the first time, then we get to begin this process with the helmet of salvation. And we know that everything from this point forward flows from that. Maybe this morning, God, we need to leave this space working better in the pursuit of righteousness or learning your word or being a person of better faith. But regardless, Regardless of what our individual need is in becoming better ready to face evil, to deal with it whenever it shows up, God, we pray that you would help us to have a disciplined life, the discernment and the discipline to continue in that, in that pursuit. We love you today, God. We thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.